During his coronation ceremony, Charles III of England will sit on an old chair with a stone in it. Today on Footnoting History, I'll be telling you about that stone and why it's there. Hi, I'm Sam. Welcome to Footnoting History. I hope that you enjoy today's episode and that it enhances your understanding and appreciation of Charles III's coronation ceremony, if you choose to watch it, that is. As always, please remember that you can get more information about all of our episodes on our website, www.footnotinghistory.com, and that you can get a captioned version of this week's episode on our website or on YouTube. In December 1950, Ian Hamilton, Gavin Vernon, Kay Matheson, and Alan Stewart Four students from the University of Glasgow made their way south to London. On December 23rd, Hamilton, Vernon, and Stewart entered Westminster Abbey as visitors and then hid in the chapels until the building was closed to await their opportunity to repatriate the Stone of Schoon. But their plan was foiled when a guard found them hiding and ushered them out of the building. They returned the next night, and the three men broke into the building while Matheson waited nearby in a car waiting to spirit her companions away. Things did not go to plan in church. The conspirators damaged the ancient coronation chair while trying to remove the stone from it, and then they managed to break the stone in two pieces. Hamilton spirited one piece of the stone to the car where Matheson sat waiting, and then they saw a police officer approaching. So they pretended to be a couple, seeking a moment alone. According to Hamilton's later account, they chatted with the officer, and he suggested that they move on to a darker lot around the corner. The couple distracted the copper for as long as they could and then drove off crazily so that they could keep the copper's attention from their companions. Ultimately, they were successful, and the larger piece of the stone was loaded into a second car, where it sat heavy in the trunk, so heavy that the car nearly bottomed out as it was driven towards Kent. The operation had been botched on many levels, but the foursome had managed to get away with the stone, and neither Scotland Yard nor the Metropolitan Police were able to discover what had happened. The authorities did, however, deduce that the Scots were probably involved with the incident in some way, and so they contacted the chief constable of Glasgow to ask him to join the investigation. Meanwhile, the border between England and Scotland was closed for the first time in 400 years as law enforcement officers tried to prevent the stone from returning home. Once the border reopened, the friends brought the stone to Bailey Robert Gray, a stonemason who happened to be a founding member of the Scottish National Party. And the next day, the stone was carried around Glasgow and shown to people who were known to have a strong Scottish nationalist inclination. For months, the theft of the missing stone was a major topic of interest in the newspapers, not only in the United Kingdom, but abroad as well. Because, you see, the king, George VI, was very sick, and a lot of people were starting to worry about how a coronation could take place without the stone. By April, the students found that their support had begun to wane, and so the conspirators left the stone in Abroth Abbey, the very place where the formal Declaration of Scottish Independence had been drawn up in 1320. The stone was immediately taken into official custody, authenticated as the genuine Stone of Schoon, and returned to Westminster Abbey, where it was re-encased in the coronation chair and used as an integral part in the coronation ceremony of Queen Elizabeth on June 2, 1953. Forty-three years later, in July 1996, the Queen agreed that the stone should be returned to Scotland, so long as the guardians of the stone swore that it would be returned to Westminster for all future coronations. The stone can now be seen at Edinburgh Castle, 
where I can tell you for experience, they will correct you if you try to call it the Stone of Scone rather than the Stone of Scoon. But if you're worried about getting it right, it's always safe just to call it the Stone of Destiny. As for the comrades who had liberated the stone in 1953, Hamilton went on to have a successful career as a criminal lawyer. Matheson became an elementary school teacher. Vernon moved to Canada, where he lived out the rest of his days working as an electrician. And Stewart had a successful career in business until his death in 2019. Even after Hamilton wrote a book about their adventures, the students were never prosecuted for their infamous heist. In a later interview with the BBC, Hamilton said, and here I quote, to do something for your country that spills not a drop of blood is, I think, something to be proud of, end quote. But what is the Stone of Schoon? And why did stealing it from Westminster constitute something for Scotland? To answer those questions, we need to look back at the stone's earlier history. The Stone of Destiny is unprepossessing in appearance. It's a plain, rectangular lump of sandstone with two handles fitted on the ends. Measuring roughly 26 by 16 by 11 inches, the stone weighs in at a staggering 336 pounds, which renders it unwieldy for thieves and coronation organizers alike. And yet, the 1950 theft of the Stone of Schoon wasn't the only attempt to repatriate it. It has been chipped at, blown up by suffragettes, declared a fake, and inspired at least one symphony. The stone's power comes from the stories attached to it. Earlier texts refer to the stone as the Stone of the Scottish Kings. The first time we see a name associated with the stone in the written record was around 1304, when the Liber Extravagans referred to it as the Pharaoh's Stone, because it was supposed to have originated in ancient Egypt and then come to Scotland by way of Spain and Ireland. By 1327, the names Stone of Schoon and Stone of Destiny were attached to it in Scottish texts, though the English typically referred to it simply as the coronation stone. Part of what made the Stone of Schoon so significant was that it could transform an ordinary person into a monarch. And according to tradition, it could even help differentiate legitimate kings from false ones. Within the Scottish tradition, the power of the stone was such that the act of sitting on it, not the anointing, or the crowning of the monarch, was what marked one as the king or the queen. It was this essential role that marked the stone as a focal point during King Edward I's invasion of Scotland. In 1296, Edward took the stone from the Palace of Schoon and transported it to Westminster Abbey, where he had it encased in a specially constructed gilded oak chair that was kept in St. Edward's Shrine. When Edward II was crowned in 1308, the stone and the chair were incorporated into the English ritual, and it has been an essential component of every English coronation ever since. The origins of the stone are not exactly clear. According to some of the oldest accounts, the Stone of Schoon originated in Egypt, where it was taken by Scotta, the daughter of the pharaoh, to Scotland. The Scotorum Historiae, written around 1537, weaves a tale in which Scotta married a Greek man around the time of the Jews' exodus from Egypt. According to this version, the couple fled to Spain where they used the stone which they had taken with them from Egypt as a throne. Their son, Simon Breck, then took the stone with him to Ireland, which he then conquered, before placing the stone at Terra where it remained until his descendant Fergus took the stone to Schoon. There are many versions of this tale. In some, Moses himself gave the stone to his sons who transported it all the way to Scotland. 
In others, the patriarch Jacob used the stone as a pillow and it gave him dreams illuminating the ladder to heaven. In this story, the stone achieves a semi-divine standing. In some versions of the story, the stone traveled with Jacob, helping him to establish empires before finally coming to rest at Skuden. Of course, none of these stories, the earliest of which hails from the 13th century, tells us anything about where the stone really comes from. And it's with a certain amount of disappointment that I'm obliged to report that studies of the stone's lithology suggest that it was probably quarried at Perth just over a mile from its resting place at Skuden Palace. But... Its real origins hardly matter because people believed that the stone had a special and possibly even divine origin. And we do know that the stone was placed at Schoon and used within the Scottish coronation ritual. The assumed association with the stone and either Moses or Jacob may well have forged a connection between regal and divine authority in the popular mind. But just as we don't know the exact origins of the stone, we don't know its earliest usage either. The first time the stone makes an appearance in a contemporary description of an enthronement ritual was in the coronation of Alexander III in 1249. While the stone might have been used before that, we don't have any proof that it was. In looking at Alexander's enthronement, David Brown has demonstrated that many of the features of the ceremony appear to have been fairly new because it was aligned with practices of kingship and regalia elsewhere in Europe. It's not until the 14th century that chroniclers definitively and unquestioningly asserted the unique quality of the ancient Scottish enthronement rituals and the Stone of Destiny's critical place within them. Indeed, while the 1249 ritual took place in the yard of Schoon Abbey, the enthronement ritual for John Balliol in 1292, though still explicitly involving the stone, took place within the Abbey Church. These adjustments suggest that the rituals surrounding kingship were still somewhat malleable. And yet, by 1296, the stone's central importance to the rituals surrounding Scottish kingship were clear enough that Edward I of England took it upon himself to personally seize the stone from Schoon and ensure its safe translation. It was held for a while at Edinburgh Castle before being transported to Westminster along with other looted Scottish regalia, including the crown, the scepter, the ring, and the robes of state. Even at that time, the English seemed to have perceived the Stone of Destiny as a critically important part of the royal collection. By taking the stone, Edward hoped to either undermine the Scottish monarchy or to usurp the spiritual power possessed by the stone for his own heirs. Although Edward did not have himself recrowned, he did have a chair crafted between 1297 and 1300 that was specifically designed to house the stone beneath it. This positioning of the stone would have been a potent act of English hegemony over Scotland, but it would still allow the English kings to benefit from whatever divine assistance the stone might confer. While the stone does appear in descriptions of medieval English monarchs, however, it did not take a central role in those rituals, and it is consistently referred to with reference to Scotland. Meanwhile, while the stone was in London, the Scottish kings continued to be enthroned without it. For nearly a hundred years, their coronations took place in Schoon. Robert the Bruce and the next four kings after him were crowned there. The ceremony was then moved to Holyrood Abbey in Edinburgh before returning to Schoon in 1488. The absence of the stone was, it seems, strongly felt. 
In anticipation of his coronation in 1306, Robert the Bruce actually sent a petition to the Pope asking him to allow the Bruce to be anointed in the absence of the Holy Stone, and the request was granted. After that, the stone retained a lot of symbolic significance, and it became an important focal point in the Scots' desire to be independent of England. But it was not the key to kingmaking that it had once been, at least in theory. And after 1603 and the Union of the Crowns, the stone's location at Westminster became less contentious than it had been before, because after the ascension of James VI of Scotland to the English throne, the stone could resume its rightful place in the coronation of Scottish monarchs. The legends around the Stone of Destiny increased along with its intellectual and economic value the longer it stayed at Westminster. The Scots would make multiple attempts to get the stone back over its 700 years of captivity, beginning with Robert the Bruce's demand for the return of the royal stone in 1324. A contemporary chronicle, the Vita Eduardi Secundi, acknowledges the Scottish claim to the throne was just, but it goes on to defend the English refusal to return it on the basis that giving the stone back would be, quote, highly damaging to us, end quote. The English, you see, also formed a strong attachment to the stone. The process was already underway by the reign of Edward III in 1327. This Edward decided to return many of the objects that his grandfather had taken from Scotland, some of which had significant monetary and spiritual value. But the Stone of Destiny was not among those objects. According to one chronicle, the people of London had already become so attached to the stone that there were riots outside of Westminster at the prospect of its return to Scotland. When the stone was finally returned to Scotland, on November 15, 1996, it was transported in a specially outfitted army land rover, resting on red velvet and enclosed in clear plexiglass for all to see. It was also escorted by a regiment of royal archers, and as it entered Edinburgh, it was greeted with parades and joyous cheers, though there were also many who deplored the return of the stone as a mere political act. And the repeated assertions that the stone still belonged to the British monarchy is still a source of resentment. Although the stone currently makes its home in Edinburgh, it will be brought back to Westminster, or has been brought back to Westminster, depending on when you're listening to this episode, to be used in Charles III's coronation. Eventually, the Stone of Scudin is destined to return to its historical home in Perth, where a special area for its display is currently under construction in preparation for the stone's arrival. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Footnoting History, and if you did, you should also remember that we have 10 years worth of footnotes to choose from for your future listening needs. If you'd like to keep our podcast going, you can join our Patreon and sign up to receive exclusive newsletters or make a one-time donation on Ko-Fi. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>